The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a great sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The word of the Lord. Do we have, do we have lift off there? Excellent. Well, over the next uh, five weeks here, we are going to be uh, exploring the book of Jonah and unpacking a number of different things. We're going to spend uh, chapter one today, and then next week we'll, we'll take a look at chapter two. Uh, we'll take the, the middle of, the, of, the, of June, we will take it off, uh, because we're having our TBC family picnic at Edwardy Park that Sunday. Uh, so you can mark that in your calendars. I think that's Father's Day as well. So we are going to, uh, we're not going to meet here. We're going to meet at Edworthy Park and have our worship celebration there. And it's going to be an opportunity for us to be able to uh, just fellowship together and worship together uh, in that context. 
And then the last two weeks of June, we will be uh, unpacking chapters 3 and 4 of Jonah. And so I want to spend some time, though, uh, uh, explaining and, sh- and sharing some of my thoughts around the, uh, why I chose Jonah for, the, for this first month, but also want to encourage you that over the course of June, that, that while we are studying it as a church, that maybe you might spend some, some extra time in your own personal Bible study, uh, just spending some time diving a little bit deeper into Jonah. And I would love to hear your stories throughout the month about what maybe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about uh, through this month regarding, regarding Jonah and some of the, the things that he had to endure uh, as, he, as he tried to, tried to uh, leave God as well as, he, as, his, as his efforts to try and follow God. Initially, though, as I was praying and envisioning uh, what this sermon series would be called, I thought, I was initially thinking, I'd call it Loving the Unlovable. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a very clear theme that we see in Jonah as, he, as, as he's called by God to, to go and serve and reveal God's truth and grace to the Ninevites, but he says no. And, and, and I thought that would be an appropriate theme. And then, I consi- and then as I continued to study and continued to pray, uh, I considered calling it a case study on shame because of the textbook responses that Jonah gives, specifically in chapter 1, as... As, as, he try, as he tries to reconcile his, his own behavior and his own attitude in his opposition towards God. Ultimately, though, as I continued to reflect on the life of Jonah, I landed on Jonah, reluctant obedience. Because although Jonah runs from God's initial call in his life because he struggled with loving the, the unlovable in Nineveh, and although his love is marked with his own struggles to overcome shame and insecurities, he still manages to follow God in spite of his imperfections, his own limitations, and poor choices. And we see a man who, in spite of his own personal feelings and, frankly, his unwillingness, still obeys the responsibility that God has called him into. I remember about 20 years ago when God first called me into pastoral ministry. I had only been a Christian for maybe six or seven months. I was really, really new in the whole following Jesus thing. And, and, I, and I want, all I knew was that I wanted to serve Jesus and I wanted to do whatever I could to please him. I didn't in that moment really consider the fact that maybe he might call me into something that I wouldn't want to do or that I would feel inadequate for. But there I was face to face with this call to become a pastor, to pursue pastoral ministry. And much like Jonah my response was, was almost immediate. And much like Jonah, it was a hard no. You see, in that season of discerning the will of God, as I looked at the potential of all the things that I understood about what it means to be a pastor, it was terrifying. And I thought, there's no way that I could do that. And it just seemed like it was a recipe for failure. And I would look at my friends who had been following Jesus for most of their lives, and I, saw, and I saw these young men and women who loved Jesus and knew the Bible so well, and I didn't even know how many books of the Bible there were. I knew who I was. I knew, I knew the things that I struggled with. I knew my past. And there's, I figured, there's no God, God, pick someone else. And I knew the things that I wanted out of life, and I knew that if I, if I were to say yes to God, that it would interfere with those plans. And so I said, forget it. And so I walked away from God's call. 
And I thought I would do other things that I thought would be more suitable for what I thought it meant for me to follow Jesus. Now interpret that as I chose things that were convenient and safe for me to follow Jesus. And I think for many of us, we have our own stories of reluctant obedience where God might have called us into something. Whether it's in the extreme cases or more practical areas like just being a supportive parent when when our kids make choices we don't agree with. Or how to live generously when finances and other resources are tight. How do we be obedient to that? How to rest when there's just so much that needs to get done. How do we honor and love people when they're just so difficult to love? And we build up our own reasons why why obedience is difficult. It's too uncomfortable. What will people think? I'm not capable. I might fail. What if God fails? And what I've discovered is that as as we look at Jonah, this chapter, I wish that there was a positive way to spin this, but this chapter very much is, is a story about Jonah's disobedience to God. And as I reflected on my own disobedience, as I reflected on Jonah's disobedience, I think what we discover is that, that this call to obedience has this ability to force us to look at our own inadequacies and shortcomings, where everything that we think should disqualify us from knowing and following Jesus becomes magnified. We see all the things that we're not, we're not good at, all the areas that we fall short in. And when we do that, we're left with, I think, two possibilities. One. We can acknowledge and accept our own limitations and recognize Jesus is our strength and weakness. That's one. Two, we can dismiss and deny our own limitations and believe the lies that Satan tells us. So one, we can acknowledge and accept our own limitations and recognize Jesus is our strength and weakness. Or we can dismiss and deny our own limitations and believe the lies that Satan tells us. And this is where we find Jonah in chapter 1. A man who responds to God's call in his life and says, you know what, forget it, hard pass, and runs the other way. And as we begin to look at this first chapter, a couple of things I want to highlight right away is that in verse 2, that when God calls Jonah to Nineveh, that he's, this is not just any small task. This is a big ask that God has made of Jonah. No, no, Nineveh was the, was the type of city that we read about in books like Game of Thrones or some medieval kingdom that was renowned for its brutality and treatment towards others. And it was only seconded by their, the, the arrogance of their leaders. And there's records of practices of the Ninevites where after war you would hear them and you just wonder, how could people do such horrendous things to other people? I had, some, I had some descriptions here, and Natalie, Natalie always reads my sermons, and she said, you can't put that in here. The Reader's Digest version is, is that the Ninevites would take their, the warriors of their captive cities, and they would take their warriors and decapitate them. And then they would build up pillars with their heads. Another example would be a captured king, and they pierced the jaw of the king, and they ran a rope through his jaw, 
and they, and, they, and they made him stay in a kennel like a dog. And there's worse things, believe me. These are people who are renowned for their brutality and cruelty. As I said, their, their kings were arrogant people. Historians have noted a King Esser Hayden who said, this is, this, is, this is his quote, I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings, the chosen one of Asher, Nebu, and Marduk. Not exactly a city that endears themselves to the rest of the world. Nineveh, Nineveh was the second largest city in Assyria, which is now present-day Iraq. But Nineveh was this city that was just a reflection of the evil that coursed through the veins of their kings. This is what Jonah is running from. Can't say I blame him. From one perspective, it's really easy to justify why he's so unwilling to, to go there. Even if his head was too big for his shoulders, he probably thought it was better than there than on a spike. And I wonder, like many of us, what were his motives for rejecting God's call in his life? Was it fear? Was it doubts? Was it fear of the Ninevites? Was it fear that he might fail? Was it fear that he wouldn't be enough? Or maybe it was another motive. Maybe it was self-righteousness. And we get a glimpse into that in chapter 4, and we'll explore that in a few weeks. But that's, that actually is one of the reasons. He didn't think the Ninevites deserved the mercy and grace that God was willing to offer them. And his self-righteousness got in the way of his ability to love. And so almost instinctively, Jonah's self-preservation instincts kick in. And in verse 3 it says that he rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He says, I'm going to Tarshish instead. I'm not having any of this. Now, there's a few different cities named Tarshish along the Mediterranean. The one that most, his, most commentators think that he was going to was, was Spain. That he's, he's, he's just like, he's, he's done, he's leaving. He's not just making a wide berth around God's will and eventually we get around to it. He's just abandoning the idea of following God entirely. He is checked out. Whatever the reason, though, for, for, was for Jonah to leave the northern kingdom and move to Spain is that he didn't accidentally find himself on a boat going to Spain. He had to make a number of willful decisions that led him to where he was at. He had to go to Joppa. He had to charter a boat. He had to pay the boat. He had to get onto the boat. He had to make sure that everything was in line for him to get, on, to get going, moving towards Spain. And I think that's kind of how disobedience works, isn't it? We make one small decision, and then another one, and then another one, and it just, the snowball begins to build. Until suddenly you look up and realize, I'm in a place very different than I thought I was going to be. I think there's three primary responses to disobedience that further complicate the issue. Primary responses, secrecy, silence, and the fear of judgment. Secrecy, silence, and the fear of judgment. And as I said earlier, I think Jonah becomes this perfect case study for us as we begin to identify our own patterns of behavior that can keep you and I in disobedience. So here we see Jonah, 
not just disobeying God, but he is outright running from God. And running from anyone who might possibly know about who he is and his role as a prophet of God. He has immediately isolated himself from anyone with hopes that no one will know him and that he can live out his days in obscurity on the beaches of Spain, knowing that he's rejected God's call in his life. Jonah, in this decision, has removed himself from any form of community that might be able to encourage him that although this, although this call might be scary, Jonah, God will be with you. He removed himself from any form of community that might affirm whether, in fact, he was hearing from the Lord or not. This is a big ask, and he certainly would, it's important to be, surround yourself with people who would be able to help discern whether this was your will or God's. And lastly, he removed himself from any form of community that would be able to empathize with him. That would be able to, anyone who would be able to feel with him and say, you know what, I can understand why you'd be afraid, but God will be with you. And instead, he ran. And the reason isolation partners so well with disobedience is because no one else knows. We don't need to worry about being judged, we don't need to worry about accountability. And we certainly really we don't really need to deal with the decisions that we make and the thoughts and feelings that lead to our disobedience. And we just hold on to them, and we have all of these feelings of why we're inadequate, why we fall short, why we don't do the things that God wants us to do, and they just stew inside of us. And they just sit there, and we have no way to really process or deal with them. And the reality, of course, is that when you and I choose disobedience, the response is always the same. Fear of judgment. What will people think? And we see our choices and are left wondering, how will people react if they know this about me? What will people think if they, if I, if they see beyond the layers that I show them? The last thing I want to do is, is be around people where, where details of my mistakes and shortcomings and shame might be a topic of conversation that will come up because I'll, I'll have to deal with that stuff. I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a friend of mine, and she shared with me how difficult it was for her and how, how, how uncomfortable she felt when, when people put her on a pedestal, where they admired how she responded to difficult circumstances and how courageous and inspirational they thought she was. And she said, they don't see my anger towards God and my doubt. They don't see my fear they just see the things that I show them. They don't see the time that I only think about myself. We only show people the things we feel comfortable showing others. That's one of the ways that we protect ourselves from getting hurt. But it's amplified when we know that we have things in our lives that we aren't proud of or things that we've been withholding from God. And so we build up walls of silence, walls of isolation, walls that are around fear of judgment. And we actually see this right from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. When faced with the consequence of their own sin, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. And as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Isolation. 
And then we see silence and fear of judgment in verses 12 and 13. The man said, the woman you put with me here, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. We see Adam and Eve blaming someone else and using avoidance or deflection as, as a way to, to, to justify their actions. And avoidance and deflection are just a subcategory of silence. We have this internal reaction to disobedience baked into our DNA as people. As we look to defend and blame and justify our disobedience in one way or another, it doesn't necessarily mean the, the big things or the extreme things in life. It can be smaller things. Jonah's response to disobedience, though, isn't much different from Adam and Eve's, where he hides as well. Basically jumps on the boat, leaves everyone that he knows to avoid any possibility of judgment or accountability from people around him. And then we see Jonah's version of silence in verse 5, where Jonah not only, takes, not only isolated himself from, by getting on the boat, but now he's further isolated himself by going inside the boat and avoiding any interaction with anyone. Avoiding any possible questions that his, choice, that his choices might have been what brought on the storm. Silence is just another way to protect ourselves because if you're like me, it's painful and difficult to take responsibility for choices that I've made that I felt ashamed of that I regret. Silence is a way that we avoid revealing the parts of ourselves that we don't want others to see. We protect ourselves with silence because it's safer. It's safer than facing possible judgment from others or embarrassment or shame. And silence and isolation and the fear of judgment all just speed up the process of shame and as a result we create this, this shame spiral inside of us and it just sucks us deeper and deeper into despair and regret. One of my favorite authors, her name is Brene Brown and she's a clinical researcher and, and she describes shame as this intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging because of something that we've experienced, done, or failed to do that makes us unworthy of connection. I'm going to say that again because there's a lot there. Describes shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging because of something that we've experienced, something that we've done, or that something that we've failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And so by the time we get to verse 5 of Jonah, Jonah is well into his shame spiral because of something that he has failed to do. And often what happens in disobedience is that we write conclusions about God that just simply aren't true, where we conclude that God has in fact not only withdrawn his love from us, but that we deserve it, but that now he wants to, but not, not only that, but now he, he's going to punish us for choices that we've made too. And so like Jonah, we hide, and we shut people out, and we run from God. Often what happens is we, we think that God only really loves me if I present myself in a certain light, and that who we are really isn't enough to be accepted by God. What we're actually saying then is that God only really loves us because of how we look, because of what we have, or because of the choices that we make that please Him. 
And we conclude that his love is conditional based on our own obedience. And as we begin to do that, as we begin to write this story about God, we begin to shift our eyes off of the truth of who Jesus really is. We begin to shift our eyes off of the love and compassion and grace of Jesus. And we end up writing this entire narrative internally about God because of choices that we've made that God surely can't tolerate. And the story that we write is that God wants to punish us for our choices rather than to help us out of it. And you see how this has played out for Jonah. When the storm comes and the sailors and him, I immediately conclude that the storm is the result of God's judgment over one of them on the boat. And so in order to discern who, that, who they can cast the blame on, they cast lots. Basically, casting lots is, is similar to rolling dice or, or flipping a coin. This is, this is a common custom in making decisions at that time. And it was an unbiased way of making important decisions that, have, that really avoided unnecessary conflict and tension. But basically, it's a game of chance. Theologically, you could make the argument that, it's, that it was a faith decision, where you could depend, where you could where it was believed and understood that, that whoever the lot was cast on was God's sovereignty, that, that, was, that God's, God's plan was at work and whatever the result was was ultimately God's will. Personally, it seems more like a game of chance that seems more terrifying than affirming. So the men cast lots, and Jonah is the winner, or more appropriately, he's the loser. And this theology of divine karma is born where, where, we can con- where we conclude that anything bad that happens to us, or in the case of casting lots, if a lot falls on you, is a result of something that you did and that God was punishing you for it. Fortunately, fortunately, that's not the way Jesus works. That's not how grace works. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When we are caught in that shame spiral and we see that spotlight of judgment and condemnation on us, that's Satan trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And he will use whatever lies he can to get you to stay in that shame spiral, whether that's discouragement, whether that's embarrassment, whether that's condemnation, he'll do whatever he can. But Jesus says, turn, my, turn your eyes to me. So you can experience the abundant life that he promises in hope and freedom and redemption. The truth is that there is no shame spiral too big for Jesus to get you out of. There is no mistake or situation too large. There are not too many poor choices that Jesus can't walk you through. Does it mean it will be easy? No. Is it possible? Yes. Jesus says in John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There is a way out of our shame spiral, and it is Jesus. So I want to give three things that move us from isolation, silence, and fear of judgment and point us towards Jesus. One, reject the notion of perfectionism. Two, Replace silence with vulnerability. And three, reach out. Reject the notion of perfectionism. 
replace silence with vulnerability, and reach out. When we shift our mindset from expecting perfection from ourselves or others, it begins to provide space for us to extend grace to others and to ourselves. One of the defining features of grace is that it's necessary, especially in our pursuit of being Christ-like. We all fall short. As parents, we fall short. As men, we fall short. As women, we fall short. As teenagers, you fall short. As grandparents, you fall short. When we live with the understanding that we fall short in one way or another, when we understand that everyone else around us will fall short as well, it gives us the ability to recognize that we are all on a journey, that we are all limited in one way or another. And that as much as we all want to be like Jesus, we simply can't do it. Doesn't mean that we give up or we stop trying, but instead we embrace the grace that Jesus offers to us and we recognize our own limitations and shortcomings in ourselves and others. And we stop expecting perfection from ourselves or from others so that we can, and we live out what it means to love others so that we can love ourselves. Reject the notion of perfectionism and extend grace. Two, replace silence with vulnerability. The tension with vulnerability is that I could stand here and share all the things that I struggle with and all of my shortcomings, and many of you would think, wow, he is so brave for being so vulnerable and sharing everything that he's going through. And for, my, my, and for myself, as I'm sharing, all I would be hearing and saying to myself is weakness and failure, weakness and failure, weakness and failure. It's amazing how vulnerability works, where we see it in weakness in ourselves, but we see strength in others. Vulnerability is releasing the power that silence has and shining the light in the dark corners of our lives, sharing the things that weigh heavy in our lives. That may not necessarily mean the deep, dark secrets and sin in our lives. For some, maybe that is the case. But it also might mean having short accounts with people, apologizing if you thought maybe you've crossed a line with a, with a comment, confiding in someone about how spiritually weary you feel or the challenges you're facing as a parent or the difficulties at work, revealing and exposing yourself and being open to what other people might have to say into your life. We all have these abilities to write stories about ourselves and others in our minds. But when we're vulnerable, when we stop expecting perfection from each other and others, it shifts the storytelling from an assumption or judgment about a person now into an opportunity to build relationship and grow in intimacy with each other. Replace silence with vulnerability. Lastly, reach out. None of us were designed to live life in isolation. We weren't designed to follow God alone. If, we are, if you are struggling with something, even as a parent, as an employee, as an employer, as a, as a child, or anything else, identify someone who you can trust to share your heart with. Someone who can empathize with you. 
Someone who you know who has had similar experiences or has similar shortcomings as you. Ask them for input. Ask them how they do it. How do they follow Jesus with everything going on around them? And unlike with the sailors and Jonah, we need people in our lives who won't just throw us overboard when we fall short. But instead, we need people in our lives who will say, me too. I so get that. But let's move forward together now. Let's follow Jesus together. And we can point each other towards the hope and grace of Jesus collectively. What a difference to know that we aren't alone and that we can extend hope to each other as the Holy Spirit empowers us to pray, love, and bear with one another. I want to conclude with this passage that Paul writes to the Colossian church. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching, and, and admonishing, one another, one, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's reject the notion of perfectionism. Let's replace silence with vulnerability. Let's reach out to one another. And as we do that, that we might become a community that loves one another well and obediently follows Jesus together. We're going to receive communion here. I'll invite the communion servers to come on up as well.